You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. You know, when you get into a service like this, it takes a while. And I think it's important to spend a little bit of time on each one of these babies and their moms and their dads. So it condenses our time. So I'm going to only be able to give you 46 points this morning. No, um, <laughs> I really want you to look at one thing. So I hope you've got a copy of God's Word. Open it, if you will, to um, Exodus chapter 19. And those four verses uh, that Kirkwood just read to us, Israel is at Sinai. Really, when you come to chapter 18, as we looked at last week, they're at Mount Sinai. Now they are settling in there because this chapter marks a new section Really, you go 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24. That's a section right there. 19 through 24 gives you uh, this, this, what God is doing there with these Hebrews at Sinai, even though they're going to stay at Sinai for at least 11 to 12 months. They're going to be there almost a year. In fact, you'll go through all the entire book of Exodus, and they're still at Sinai. You go through the entire book of Leviticus, they're still at Sinai. You get into the book of Numbers up to the 10th chapter, and in the 10th chapter, they set out from Sinai. So they have settled now at Sinai, and they're going to be there for a while. And I'm going to show you in just a moment why God's brought them there and why they have settled there for this period of time. Um, We looked at the... really the conversion of Jethro last week, I want you to look, as you come to chapter 19, I want you to look literally at the character of God. You're going to see that. I can only give you a part of it today. I'm going to come back, Lord willing, next Sunday and give you the rest of this in the 19th chapter. But uh, I want you just to notice that God gets them there And God's going to say three things to them. He calls Moses up on the mountain. By the way, as far as I can tell, God calls Moses up to the mountain seven times. Seven times is is about what I can count, what I see. Three times in chapter 19. He's going to call him up. Now, I've climbed Mount Sinai before. We, We had to ride camels in the dead of night. And I mean, it was so dark, you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. If you could see where those camels had gone on that mountain, uh, you would have been terrified um, because it is just a sheer drop-off, hundreds of feet uh, down, but those camels know where they're going, obviously because we're here. Um, And uh, then you have to climb the rest of the mountain. I want to tell you something. I was about 50 years old when I climbed that mountain, and it just about killed me. I was convinced I was going to have a heart attack. Uh, I got altitude sick. Uh, it, was, um, it was difficult at best. Moses is in his early 80s. And he's up and down this mountain three times in this one crazy chapter. And so I'm thinking that is a man's man. So whatever you think about Moses, let me tell you, he must have been the John Wayne of his day, I would suppose. Anyway. Um, he was a man's man. He goes up. God calls him up. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain. That's in verse 3. He goes up, and as he goes up, he draws close to God. Now, this has been my thought the entire week as I've looked at these four verses. 
I've thought about James chapter 4, verse 8, where the half-brother of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, wrote these words, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So what you discover is this, is that when you start moving toward God, he's already been moving toward you. When you are drawn to God, he's the one that's doing the drawing. Uh, Moses goes up, but the Lord has called for him to come up the mountain, saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, uh, we had a number of these children named Jacob up here this morning, and tell the sons of Israel. He says, I want you to go back down. I'm going to give you three things that I want you to tell them. And number one, the first thing that I want you to tell them is this, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. Now, the 10 plagues on Egypt probably took place over the period of a year. They saw the power of God displayed through all of these signs, through all of these plagues, ending in that last plague, the death of the firstborn. They watched the power of God. Now they're coming for a year to be at Mount Sinai, and on Mount Sinai, they're going to see the glory of God. They've watched for a year the power of God. Now they come to Sinai, and for a year, they're going to watch and see the glory of God. What an experience for that generation. Well, really, it was two generations. Uh, the, uh, the, well, no, it's that one generation. The, that generation is going to pass away in the wilderness. They'll never make it into the land. But what, what an incredible thought for a year to watch the outpouring of the power of God and then for a year to spend it in the midst of the glory of God. So he says, you go back and you tell them, they've seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I defeated the Egyptians, how I opened the sea, how I brought you across on dry land, and how I closed the sea back over the Egyptians so that you'll never have to worry with seeing them again. So he says, you go and tell them, they've seen what I did to the Egyptians, and now, secondly, how I bore you on eagle's wings. Now, let me just say something to you about this. There have been reams of paper and oceans of ink spent on this one verse, on that part of the verse, with people trying to explain how eagles can catch their young. And then you've had others who have written just as much on how it is an impossibility for eagles to catch their young. You missed the whole thing. When you get, I, I, as I read commentary after commentary on this, I thought the, you've missed the entire thing. All you've done is dredge up an argument that is not even there. If you go to 2 Samuel chapter 1, you'll read how Jonathan and David were swifter than the eagles. Now, does that mean they literally could fly faster than eagles could? No, we understand that Scripture uses metaphor, hyperbole, simile, all of these types of speech Scripture uses. So when you read that Jonathan and David were swifter than eagles, you understand what it's saying. You come to Job. In Job's, um, uh, in Job's trial, you read where God takes the eagle and he causes the eagle to go up high and build his nest so that nothing will ever bother those baby eagles. 
uh, well, you understand what he's saying right there. And if you think about this, what God is saying is, I came in and as swift as an eagle, I swept you out of Egypt and I put you high on the bluff of the Red Sea where you could watch your enemies die, drown, be covered up, and you were safe where I put you, just like an eagle who builds a nest. Now, that's what God is saying here. He's saying, I delivered you, and I delivered you swiftly. I delivered you successfully. I delivered you where nothing could bother you. Nothing could touch you. Not even the Amalekites that came out at Rephidim could do anything to the Hebrews. And they were not a standing army. Uh, They were just a bunch of sheep herders and farmers out there with hay rakes and pitchforks fighting an army. And yet God delivered them from all of that. And the third thing now is what I want you to focus your attention on because this is part of the character of God that is so fascinating to me. He says, I brought you to myself. Do you see that? You You got to look in your Bible. It's not up here. You've got to see it right here. I brought you to myself. That's the word. That's the tenderness of God right there. I don't, you know, I I, I don't know if you ever think of God in those terms that God is tender, but God is tender. Uh, You would think that as God led them out of Egypt, God would immediately take them into the land flowing with milk and honey, but he doesn't. God doesn't move them immediately out of Egypt and straight into the promised land where he's eventually going to lead them. He doesn't do that. He takes them out of Egypt, and in three months, he brings them down to the bottom of Sinai to a mountain because he said, I brought you to myself. Now, do you understand that God's purpose was not just to get them into the promised land. The purpose of God was to get them to himself. Do you know why God saved you? Not to get you out of hell. Although that's the reason most of us decided to get saved. We'd like fire insurance. The reason God saved you was to bring you to himself. Getting out of hell is just a great, (laughs) it's just a great gift that comes along with salvation. What God wants is God wants and desires fellowship with you. That's the tenderness of God. And I want you to look at that because now you're going to be introduced. This is a long introduction, but let me, let me just show you. You're going to be introduced to these two things that are here. You're going to see two aspects of the of the character of God, not two sides to God. There are not two sides to God. Uh, This is not the yin and the yang. Uh, We're not talking about Zen Buddhism. We're not talking about the light side and the dark side. Uh, God is all light. There is no darkness in him. That's what James tells us, right? Uh, What this is, is two aspects of the character of God. Now, what does Scripture tell us about God? Two things. Number one, God is holy, and God is love. God is holy, and God is love. 
And you're going to see, now we generally, and as preachers, we generally tend one way or the other. But I have to remind myself and keep reminding myself there has to be a balance between these two. God is holy, God is love. And what you're going to see in just a little bit as we get past this into the 19th chapter and the 20th chapter, you're going to see on display the holiness of God. You're going to feel the fire. You're going to smell the smoke that comes down on Sinai. You're going to see the flashes of lightning. You're going to hear the the roaring of these trumpets. It's the only thing that they could explain it sounded like was just the blasting, the blaring of trumpets. You're going to feel the earth shaking, the mountain shaking. You're going to come to the holiness of God, to where God is going to say to Moses, you appoint men and put them around the mountain, and if man or beast touches the mountain, you kill them because you can't just skip up here to me. God is holy, and you just don't flippantly come into his presence. By the way, having just come back from Israel, uh, if you ever go there with me, I take every group to the southern steps. Uh, These are steps that we know for certain that Christ walked up and down these steps. It was the way all the Jews in that day went in and out of the temple. And so you come to the southern steps that had been built there, And the fact of the matter is, is you come to a step that may be as wide as this right here, 12 inches, and you'll come to the next step will be 24 inches. And the next step may be um, half of that. And then the next step may be 36 inches. And you say, well, why are these steps so uneven? Because Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, you be careful not to act like a fool and come quickly into the presence of God. He's holy. We forget that as we flippantly use the expression, oh my God this and oh my God that. You you need to remember, God is holy and his name should not be taken so flippantly as we do in this culture. Well, he's also a God of love. In fact, if you look over to chapter 34, and we're going to see this in, in, uh, in another year, I suppose. Uh, in chapter 34 of Exodus, you remember Moses says, I want to see your glory. And God says, I, I can't, you can't and live, but I will myself make all my goodness pass before you. And so Moses comes up and in the cleft of the rock, uh, the Lord causes him his presence to pass by Moses and the Lord passed by him in front of him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, uh, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Now you flip to the other side again, back to the wrath, to the judgment part. He's just expressed, this is who I am. I'm compassionate. I'm gracious. I'm slow to anger. I'm abounding in loving kindness and truth. And I keep loving kindness for thousands, forgive iniquity and transgression and sin. That's the love of God. That's Uh, That's the love and the care of God that we see on the cross at Calvary. That's the tenderness of God. So God looks at Moses and he says, you go back down there and you tell them, 
I brought them to me. That's the tenderness of God. And I want to tell you three things about the tenderness of God that you find through Scripture. Now, I'm going to move you through a lot of Scripture here. If you can't get there, just write these down and go home and look at it in a little bit. Um, The first thing about the tenderness of God involves his patience. Now, we, we don't generally think of tenderness in that way, but tenderness involves the patience of God. Let me read to you something out of 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish. Now, let me just re- re- reemphasize that. Not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Peter comes and he says, don't mistake the patience of God for being the apathy of God. In fact, I want to I share something else. I want to take you to another verse, and that verse is Ecclesiastes chapter 8. We don't understand the patience of God. And the reason we don't understand the patience of God is because of what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 11, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. Now, did you hear what he just said? He said, because when you sin, God doesn't zap you immediately. You think two things. You think, number one, well, God really isn't serious about what he said. Or number two, God just says, let it go. And the real thing is this. We think, well, the reason God didn't zap me from my sin, for my sin is because God loves me so much, he's just going to let me slide. Let me tell you something. Your sin never gets to slide. It costs somebody every time you sin. And that somebody's Jesus Christ. And so because God doesn't just zap somebody immediately, we don't really take his word that seriously. Amen goes right there. But now let me... Let me take you back to Romans for a moment. And let me just share with you something out of Romans chapter 2. Listen to what Paul writes as he says this. Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience? I'm going to read that again. Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and his tolerance and his patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? God is patient with you and your sin, not because he doesn't take it seriously, but because he waits in his kindness for you to come and say, oh, Father, forgive me of my sin. Now, you may already be a Christian, but let me tell you something. When you sin, you wreck that relationship until there is repentance. I'll give you a quick story in understanding this, I, I, I worked for my father growing up who had a furniture store. He sold upper-end furniture. We sold a lot of craft teak, which was solid, mahogany, um, Honduran mahogany. 
And one of the things that we sold all the time happened to be a rice, a hand-carved rice bed out of solid mahogany, a headboard and a footboard, and the two side rails. All of it solid mahogany. I took one out to a lady uh, one, one day, right around Christmas time. Uh, she and her husband were giving each other this for Christmas. And um, her neighbor had come over. They were standing there in the driveway. I'm on the back of the truck. And I, I, I stand up there. I get the footboard. I've leaned the headboard up. I've picked the footboard up. I get off the back of the truck with the footboard. And my movement off the back of the truck causes that headboard to just do this. Now, we've got iron rails on the back of the truck so you could tie furniture to it. And... Um, Stupidly, I had not tied back that headboard to keep it from falling. And as I stepped off, one of the high posts, those posts are six feet tall, at least six feet, high, if not a little more than that, maybe six and a half feet, six, six something. Anyway, it just snapped off, like just popped, just popped in two. Well, that lady starts crying. And her neighbor puts her arm around her and is trying to console her. And I'm thinking, I got to go tell my daddy. <laughs> and uh, so I, I told the, I said, ma'am, listen, let me just set this up for you. you. You can go ahead and sleep on it. I'll get the thing. We'll, we'll replace the headboard for you. Uh, that'll be replaced. I've got another one at the store. I'll get it and I'll bring the headboard back. out. So I went back to the store and instead of just loading the bed and going back out there, and replacing it for the lady and bringing the broken one back and just sticking it in the warehouse, uh, hoping that one day somebody would say, how did this happen? I said, golly, that's terrible, isn't it? Um, I walked to my dad's office and I said, dad, um, I did something really dumb. I stepped off the back of that truck and I did not have that headboard. He said, um, well, just tell me, what, what did you do? What, what did you say? And I told him, he said, I know. He said, the lady's already called me. <laughs> and uh, I said, well, why didn't you just tell me that? He said, because I wanted you to tell me. You got a father in heaven who, if you sin, he's not going to kick you out of heaven. But he's waiting to hear from you. He's waiting to hear from you. Just to confess your sin to him. And I want to tell you, I felt so much better about it. Anyway. I won't tell you the rest, but there you go. That's what happens. Now, listen, right now while I'm preaching, I want to I tell you, do you realize what's happening in the world? Do you realize what's happening? Do you know in the last 30 minutes, somebody in America has been murdered? Every 30 minutes in America, somebody's murdered. Every, um, every 3.9 minutes... In America, a woman is raped. Every 39 seconds, there is a violent assault committed in this country. Do you realize that while I'm preaching, there is either a man or a woman, a husband or a wife who is secretly having an affair? And they're planning to pack up and leave and they're going to leave their home, their marriage. They're going to just trash their vows. They're going to leave the children. And they're going to move out and move in with somebody. 
that they believe themselves to be in love with, but most likely it's just lust. Do you know how many people will be hurt and devastated by that? Do you know while I stand here and preach, somebody has slipped into their office because it's a Sunday and no one's there, and they can go and they can erase and refigure the books. They can pilfer from the company. They can go in and repad their expense account. Uh, There are those that are out there in this moment uh, right now who are stealing or hurting, or maiming, or crippling, or abusing, all in the time we preach. And do you know what else? God sees every bit of it. And you say, why doesn't God stop all of this? Because he would that none would perish, but that all would come to salvation. That's the tenderness of God. Now, let me give you the second thing. And the second thing is this, the tenderness of God involves his sympathy. Listen to Hebrews chapter four. It's a great verse. You ought to mark it, underline it. Therefore, let me begin in verse 14 of Hebrews chapter four. Since we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. The writer of Hebrews comes and he tells us that God is, or that Jesus Christ is a high priest who is sympatheo. Compound word, sum, with, patheo, pathos, passion. He has passion with us as we go through what we're going through. He sympathizes with us. He's been tempted just like we have. He's gone through this life as well. He's been hurt. He's been wounded. He's been isolated and left alone. All the things that hurt us, he knows, he sympathizes with us. To sympathize means your heart is involved. To empathize means your mind is involved. I know what you're going through because I've experienced. Sympathize means I have chosen to put my heart into your situation and I feel what you're going through. I can see how it affects you, and I am letting it affect me in the same way. And you say, well, did did God, does God ever cry? Yes, you see it in Jesus. He wept at the tomb of Lazarus because of the effects of sin. He weeps over Jerusalem because of the rejection that he faces there. You may be a young man in this place and Listen, you're just not the athletic kind. You can't run a 30-minute mile, much less a 10-minute mile. You're never chosen for a side. You're always seen studying. You don't fit into that mold of what they say a man is supposed to be, and you feel left out, and you feel isolated, and you feel alone. You may be a young lady, and you're here, and the phone never rings, and nobody ever calls, and you never go out. And you feel like I'm just a wallflower. And you wonder, can, can God ever understand what I'm going through? 
Do you remember the woman at the well who felt like she was used? She had been married five times and now she's living with a man and she no doubt felt used and embarrassed and she knew that everybody knew about her life and yet Jesus still engaged her in conversation and found worth in her. Do you remember the woman who had the issue of blood who felt so isolated after 12 years of just constantly bleeding and going to doctor after doctor after doctor, gets to Jesus, touches the hem of his garment, and Jesus stops, turns around, and says, who touched me? He waits for her to identify herself, and then Jesus does what no rabbi would have done in that day. He talks to a woman in public, and he calls her daughter, an endearing term. Maybe you feel like that leper who comes to Jesus and says, listen, if you were willing, you could do something about my situation. Maybe you're in a situation that you just cry out, God, if you could do something, you, you, could, you could take care of this if you were willing to do it. And what does Jesus say to him? I'm willing, I'm willing I sympathize. I've been betrayed by one disciple. The other 11 disciples abandoned me. I was left in isolation. I was left by myself. I carried my own cross until I fell under the weight of it up to Calvary. I stretched myself out. I allowed them to hammer me to that cross. There in that place, I cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Of all the people, why have you turned your back on me? Why? Because of the tenderness of God, Jesus can feel what we feel. He knows what you go through. It matters to him. We don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, listen, draw near because of that. Draw near in confidence to the throne of grace so that you can receive mercy. There's one last thing, and the last thing is this, is the tenderness of God involves forgiveness. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Do you know what that verse says? The verse says that when God was going to crucify you as payment for your sin, he pushed you aside, he took his own son, and he put his own son. Listen, all you got to do is read Acts chapter 2. It was the predetermined will and plan of God to put Jesus on a cross. I wouldn't put one of my children through a whooping for anybody, much less put them on a cross. He put his son on a cross instead of you so that he could turn around and treat you like you were his son, Jesus. Now you wonder, how can a holy God be a loving God? How can he be a God that just doesn't zap people immediately when they sin? Because he would that none would perish, but that all would be saved. That's the tenderness of God for your life. 
And never, never mistake tenderness for weakness. We, we think of certain things and we think of weakness. We think of meekness as weakness, but it's not. We think of gentleness as weakness, but it's not. We think of tenderness as weakness, but it's not. It's strength. It's power. This week, we, Deb and I were looking out the kitchen window. Late in the afternoon, there's a little wood duck. She had eight little ducklings. And she would bring those little ducklings out every afternoon, about almost the same time, and would cross the lake with those little ducklings and then turn around and come back. <laughs> and uh, on this day, she was making her way over and then back, and she got back right there in front of our, our dock, and I don't know what stopped her, what paused her, and the swan was there. Now, I read an article several years ago about a swan in Scotland that killed a cocker spaniel in the water. The wings on a swan are so big, the bones are so hard, and the wings are so big that that swan beat that cocker spaniel to death in the lake. Um, it's, it's unreal how big that swan is when you get up to it. It loves Debbie. It hates me. Say it's demon-possessed, I can tell you right now. It, you know, it, it loves her. She feeds it all the time. I, I don't mess with it. Um, but that swan was there, and these little ducklings were all around its mother, and that swan reached over and pecked at one of those little ducklings, just kind of pecked at it. That little wood duck, that female wood duck, is a fourth of the size of that swan, maybe a fifth of the size. That thing rose up in righteous indignation. It came up out of the water, flapping its wings, and it got on the head of that swan and was beating that swan in the head and pecking it, just pecking it, until that swan automatically put it in reverse and started backing up from that, from that duck, trying to get away from that duck and those little ducklings. And we watched that. We were amazed at that, how that duck would, I, I would have never believed it until, I've, until I saw it. Because just yesterday, we saw that swan go after a fox. Now, that's how bad that swan is. That little duck, let me tell you, you said, well, that's just instinct, preacher. God just puts instinct in there. That was tenderness. There wasn't hatred for the swan. That was the tenderness of a mother duck who said... I love that little duck. I, in whatever way a duck can love its duckling, it loves that little. And that tenderness showed itself in a ferociousness. Now, let me tell you something. That's exactly how God showed his love to you. In a ferocious battle that took place on Calvary. Let's stand. The tenderness of God. He loves you.
In fact, God loves you so much that he's already died for you and for your sins. And he waits for you to receive that free gift. He offers it. This morning, whoever you are, he is offering you the free gift of eternal life and the forgiveness of your sins. He's offering to fill you with his spirit for the rest of your life, to seal you to the day of redemption. And he promises that he will hold you in the hollow of his hand and nothing will be able to snatch you out of it. Between now and the time you get into eternity with him, I wonder this morning if you're willing to come and say, I want to give my life to Jesus Christ. I want to respond to the tenderness, to the love, to the mercy, to the kindness, to the forgiveness, to the long-suffering of Jesus Christ. I wonder others of you who you've trusted in Christ, but you've wrecked that relationship because there is ongoing sin in your life. And all the Father does is wait for you to come and confess that sin. And He'll restore that fellowship. Some of you this morning need to come and say, I want to be a part of a church that looks at the whole counsel of the Word of God. From His holiness to His tenderness and everything in between, I invite you to come this morning. Father, in these moments, as our minds are filled with your tenderness toward us, I pray, Lord, that our hearts would be moved to be obedient to what you're saying to us. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Would you come right now as God speaks? Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.